And so it's a joy to be here with you today. Um, I've had the opportunity to share just briefly uh, about um, our ministry, and then we'll dive into God's Word. So uh, as Pastor Ray mentioned, my wife and I, were headed to the Philippines. We're looking to buy our tickets now July 11th, much in part, thank you to the partnership of SFBC and other churches in the area. So we're really thrilled to be going. Let me just tell you a little bit about the ministry here we go. Um, we're going to be going to help a training center. You're familiar with TMAI. I know you guys uh, support people like Fali uh, Ravwangi and others um, and who are doing pastoral training. And so we're a part of a, a network of pastoral training centers around the world under the umbrella of the Master's Academy International. It's an association of like-minded schools. There's 18 of them. And uh, I want to share a couple stories with you on these photos, but we're going to move forward. The specific school that we're going to be a part of is called the Expositors Academy, and it's been there for 15 years in the Philippines, training men to preach God's Word, to teach God's Word, and to live it out and to disciple others to do the same. Um, that is the tip of the spear of the ministry. We also have programs for lay people and Bible um, survey classes and so forth. So why the Philippines? Really briefly, we want to reach the Filipinos. And Philippines is full of uh, Catholic churches, uh, nominal Catholics who um, don't know the true gospel. And so we want to bring the gospel to them. And by strengthening the local churches there in the Philippines, we can reach the Filipinos. If we can affect and strengthen the pulpit, we can then disciple and impact the church. And those people will go out and to evangelize to the many Catholics in their area. It's predominantly Catholic. There's 7,000 islands in the Philippines, and so as you get into the rural areas, you're going to have people who have never even been exposed to the gospel at all, and so we would even hope to reach the unreached peoples. I want to tell you one story um, about Stanley, actually, and Stanley uh, it was in the Philippines. He heard a good expository preaching on the radio, and he said, I need to learn how to teach like that. Where can I be trained? And so he says, well, this radio preacher, he's in the United States, let me call up his ministry. And so he calls him up and realizes there's just no way financially for him to get to the United States to be trained. But the person on the other side of the phone call says, you know, there's actually a school trained by master seminary guys out over in the Philippines training pastors to do exactly what you need. And so let me put you in contact with him. And he signed up for the Expositors Academy. That's the school we're going to be a part of in the Philippines Many years later now, he's been trained, and he's one of the faculty members training other Filipinos now to do exactly what he's been trained to do. So we were trying to live out the Second Timothy 2.2 model to take what we've been learned and to entrust it to other men to be able to teach others. Also, that's Stanley's story. Now he's a faithful um, pastor and professor at our school. I'm going to skip through some of these. A fourth reason why we were excited to go to the Philippines is because of the nearby opportunities. Now, if you know the Philippines, I was talking to Pastor Henry. I guess he has some uh, heritage in the Philippines. And so he, he hit it on the nail. Exactly why I want to go is because the Philippines has access to Southeast Asia, unlike many other countries do. See, the Philippines, are f they're friendly with the West. And so we can go as a family and as missionaries with a missionary visa, no problems. But what's unique is that the Philippines is part of this association of Southeast Asian nations. Think of the EU, where you can travel between country to country without any questions, really easy to get a visa. People from Vietnam and Myanmar and Cambodia and Laos 
Indonesia, the number one most populous Muslim country in the entire world, can travel to the Philippines for 30 days, 45 days, whatever their visa allows, to be trained by the men at the Expositors Academy, by our training center, and then they can go back and continue to strengthen their churches. They can continue to pastor their churches. And the long-term vision would be even to train enough Filipinos to be missionaries and to go into these countries and to reach them for the gospel because they have a unique passport that us Westerners do not. They can even go to places in the Middle East that we would never be able to go to. And so Filipinos are, are unique in that sense and can travel all around the world. So if we can train them with the word to rightly handle it, to preach it, and to teach others to do also, we can have an impact for the gospel. That's what gets us excited about the Philippines. That's why we want to go to the Philippines and we're excited. And so we would just ask you um, to join us. So why now? Well, there's a large need. As, as we've mentioned, there's 500 students just in the Philippines itself. There are students from Cambodia who are taking classes. There's a, there's a student from Malaysia that's taking classes with us right now. They moved to the Philippines. Uh, we have partners in Vietnam and in Indonesia and most of those Southeast Asian countries. And so that's why we want to go. I want to go. We're going to teach. I'm going to help teach at the school, but I'm also going to provide administrative support. And uh, one of the missionaries told us, you know, as a missionary, we go out to the field thinking we're going to teach 80% of the time and do ministry in terms of discipleship and training 80% of the time. And once they get onto the mission field, they realize they're doing 80% administration. They're figuring out where they're going to meet. They're setting up chairs. They're creating the bulletin. They're paying salaries. And they're doing 20% of the actual ministry they thought they were going to be doing. So we said, well, why not go and support them in an administrative role, something that my wife and I love to do behind the scenes to support those guys who are gifted in teaching and preaching and so that they can do even more of that. So there's a large growing need for theological pastoral training in the Philippines and Southeast Asia, and that's how we are praying that the Lord will allow us to go in just two months from now to support this ministry. So that's the Expositors Academy. These are some photos um, of our men. The one on the bottom right is actually in Mindanao. It's primarily uh, an island primarily of Muslims. Uh, the one up top um, is one of our graduating classes. The picture on the bottom is actually uh, our extension in Cambodia that we're working with right now. And then the picture on the top left, it's actually in Pakistan. And um, there's a connection there. And our men, our training center men, our leaders are able to go to Pakistan and begin to do training there through a relationship that is opened up. So we just ask for your prayers. Um, thank you so much for partnering with us in this unique way. Uh, this is a missions-minded church, and we were so excited, so thrilled to hear that you will be partnering with us in ministry. And we would invite all of you to join us in prayer. And so you can sign up there on the QR code, and there will be some prayer request cards in the back as well. We'll be sending um, a monthly newsletter, and so you can join us in this way. So thank you so much. Uh, we're really excited to, to begin this partnership, one that we've already had for, for a number of years through individuals, but now formally as a church. Well, let's dive into God's Word uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at how the nations began, and we're going to look at specifically Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through Nine Genesis chapter 11, 1 through 9. And again, I just want to thank the, the elders and the leaders here of this church for allowing me to, to come and to share about the ministry, but also to, to preach God's word. Many of the leaders of this church have had a huge impact on my life over the years, so it is an absolute joy to be here today. 
Now let's read uh, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them there from over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of our living God. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we come to you and your word, and we ask for a heart this morning that is humble and ready to learn and worship you. We acknowledge that we are full of sin, and we need your help this morning. And we pray that you be glorified and we be challenged and edified in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Singaporeans have made a name for themselves through the Marina Bay Sands Hotel. How many of you know the Marina Bay Sands Hotel? There's a couple of you. Yeah, all right. Well, if you haven't seen it before, it's one, it was one of the most expensive casinos ever built at $8 billion in city in the country of Singapore, 2,500 hotel rooms. But what makes the Marina Bay Sands Hotel really stand out, and I'll give you permission, if you're using a smartphone, you can Google it really quickly, just do Marina Bay Sands Hotel, but you'll see there in the picture, <clears throat> there's three towers that's, that reach to the skies with a boat light fixture that connect all three up top. It's, it's magnificent. It's incredible to see, especially in the evening, and it overlooks the entire bay of Singapore. And there's an infinity pool up top that's several hundred feet long. And this whole tower, everything just, just beams into the, throughout the city. Nowhere else in the world will you see, in my opinion, a structure like the Marina Bay Sands Hotel. It's magnificent. It's iconic. And the world knows Singapore through this structure in many ways. It declares their country as a creative powerhouse, an engineering mastermind. And for being a nation that's only 55 years old, Singapore has distinguished themselves from the rest of the world, much in part due to the Marina Bay Sands Hotel. And if you think about it, that's the point, isn't it? You know the people when you see the place. Uh, it makes the city and the people in it famous. And you could say that about other wonders of the world. It's the same. If I say the pyramids, you know the people that I'm referring to. It would be the Egyptians. If I say the Taj Mahal, it would be those people in India. And that's exactly what we see here today in the story of the Tower of Babel. But I think even a hundred times greater. 
right? A hundred times greater. They're out to make a name for themselves, to even elevate their name above God's. And through this ambition to make a name for themselves, this story reveals the sinful, depraved heart of man, but it also highlights the amazing kindness of God. Genesis 11, 1 through 9, as short as it is, connects the previous 10 chapters of the Bible and sets up the remaining 1,188. And in doing so, this story tells of a name that is greater than Babel. There is a name that goes beyond Babel. There is a name above all names. No matter how hard a people seek to make a name for themselves, God's name is infinitely greater, and his plan and his name will always prevail. And that's what we're going to see here today in the study. And perhaps you're joining us for the very first time. Maybe this is your introduction to Christianity. And I I pray that you'll walk away with a high view of God. And I invite you to commit your life to this God today. Or perhaps you're a believer, and you've been here as, for as long as you can remember. And I pray that as we look at this passage today, our time together will remind you of, of your sin, but reinvigorate your understanding and your love for God's kindness and spur you on to help fulfill his grand plan. To help us then to study our word today, I've outlined our passage with two headings. We're going to look first at man, verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to look at God in the remaining verses. Man and God. We're going to look at what man is doing and his motivation, and then we're going to look at what God does here in this passage and his motivation. So let's talk and dive in. Let's look at man first. And some background on man up to this point in history. Genesis 1 through 2, we know that all things were created by God, and man was part of that creation. But in Genesis chapter 3, sin is introduced, and man falls into that sin. Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills Abel, and the sin of murder is introduced. And we see the spiral now. Sin continues to, be, uh, to spread throughout all of humanity. Genesis chapter 5 through 9, man's wickedness spurs throughout the whole earth. And then we have the resulting flood. And then in Genesis chapter 10, we have what is called the table of nations. From Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, we see how the nations of the world developed. And in chapter 10, we read several times that nations and language have already developed. For example, chapter 10, verse 5, from these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. Verse 20, these are the sons of Ham, by their clans and their languages, their lands and their nations. Same with 1031. And we could read, then come to chapter 11, verse 1, what do we read? Now the whole earth had one language, the same words. And so what just happened? Chapter 10, we have all the clans, many languages, all many lands, and now verse 1, there's one language. Well, have you ever read the Old Testament? I'm sure you have, and when you do read the Old Testament, you'll pick up on this Old Testament uh, narrative. Um, it's typical in Hebrew narrative that often we read a passage first and then the author subsequently provides additional detail. We saw this in Genesis 1 through 2 where the creation of man is briefly described and then in chapter 2, more detail is given. So there's many instances like this throughout the Bible. And in this case, in chapter 10, there are multiple languages of the world. And then immediately in 11, we hone in to see how all of this happened. And then it begs the question, well, Why are we zoning in? Why are we zooming in into this one passage? And why is it so important for us to understand this? 
And so realizing the importance then of this section of Scripture, let's refocus our lens back on man and ask some basic questions of this passage. What is man doing here? First of all, we see that all of mankind is speaking the same language and the same words. And to reiterate what's already clear here, one language, it's common language, same words, they have conventional vocabulary, and all this means is that they understand one another. See, just because you speak English, it doesn't mean that you always understand someone else that's speaking English. Let's say I were to go to New York, for example, or to Nigeria in Africa, uh, or even in the Philippines, they speak English there. It won't always mean that you can have a cohesive, coherent conversation with someone because they might use different vocabulary than you. And so that's the point. They speak the same language. They have the same vocabulary. They understand one another. And so what do we learn about that? Well, they can actually collaborate with one another and work together. And they can unify around a common goal. And this may not seem super important at this point at first glance, but let's continue to gather our facts here. And I think it'll be clear why this is so important. More fact-finding. What else do we see man doing here? Verse 2. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They, they settled in Shinar. Now, Shinar, I want to point out that it's likely Shinar wasn't too far from the Garden of Eden. And if you carefully follow the narrative of Genesis, you'll see that this is troublesome. See, God has a specific plan for mankind from the beginning of creation. Genesis 1.28 says to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it. Genesis 8.7.9.1.9.7 And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why was God telling man to spread? Because in Genesis 1.26, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And after man was created in the image of God, he was commanded to spread that image, all right? He didn't choose the giraffes to do this, and he didn't choose the doves to do this. He chose man. This was God's plan for his own glory, to make man in his image and to send man throughout the world to bear witness to God. The spreading of God's people is part of his plan, the outworking of his blessing given to his people, Spreading, spreading. And then we see here in verse 2, they settled. They settled there in Shinar, probably in a place not too far from where it all began. (laughs) What on earth is man doing here? More fact-finding. Verse 2 also says that they settled from the east. And oftentimes when we read east in the book of Genesis, it's an omen. It's a bad omen. It's a foreshadow, if you will, that what is going to happen is not good. Bear with me here. I know we're going back into Genesis quite a bit, uh, but it's important, right? Context is important. Repeated words and themes are important. So feel free to jot these references down. We can, you can study them later. But chapter 3, verse 24, Eden, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden and the angels were set to guard the garden on the east. Adam and Eve were sent eastward. Chapter 4, verse 6, Cain goes east after killing his brother. Even in chapter 13, afterwards, when Abraham and Lot separate, Lot goes eastward. And very quickly, Lot faces trouble, and Abraham has to come and rescue him. 
When you see east in Genesis, it's often not a good sign. And so we've learned so far that man is speaking one language, settled, and he's going eastward. And now in and of of themselves, those things are not sinful. But they begin to paint a picture when they put them all together in this one passage that what is happening here is not good and it's not about to honor and glorify the Lord. The context of the story has certain indicators. So we need to keep looking. Next we see man constructing a city tower in verse 3. They said to one another, come and let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And look what it says here. Come, let us make. Uh, building is not wrong in it of itself. But remember, what is God doing in Genesis 1 verse 1? God is creating. Man is not known for creating. God is. Come, let us. This term, Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so when man uses this phrase in this context, combining let us and, and make, he's mocking God and in a sense of crediting to himself a God-like characteristic that only belongs to God. A character trait man doesn't deserve and should not have. This is God language, not man language. What are the materials using here? They're using brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Bitumen was this kind of slimy sludge that would hold the bricks together. And some commentators give some insight onto to why the people here are using these, these materials instead of the brick and, and um, instead of the stone, instead of the mortar. And one commentator notes that the people of Babylon are, are using inferior supplies here. Um, inferior products such as brick uh, for stone would have been better choice. And so by mentioning that they were using inferior supplies, Moses is is potentially mocking, uh, making fun of the city builders. Why are you using these inferior supplies? But another commentator says this. He says uh, that using brick and bitumen, potentially inferior products, actually gave kings of the day the ability to engrave and impress upon the stone and the bricks their own name their own stamp, their own logo, so that in generations to come, their name would be impressed upon the people for years and generations. No one would forget their name. They would leave a a lasting legacy for generations. But regardless of, of mocking or imprinting the king's name, whatever the intended reason for contrasting these materials, the use of brick for stone and bitumen for mortar was not being portrayed in a positive light. It was a negative context. Again, taking all of these different pieces, again, nothing in and of themselves bad, but it's portraying and painting a picture that isn't good. Verse 4, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Come, let us build ourselves. Once again, we have man declaring their ability to create. But now it specifies a city and a tower. And it's possible that this city tower here all contained maybe in one massive structure. We don't have a lot of detail here, but we can infer as to why they would want to do something like that and have a large structure, a large tower. I mean, militarily, they would give them advantages from enemies coming towards them. Uh, they could have a tower that could look out into the distance. They could have a wall and be fortified. Instead of being nomadic, when you're constantly on the move, you could actually um, be experts in your craft and potentially uh, even grow crops and things like that and to be able to trade. But when you think upon a civilized city and economy today, what, what do you see? 
you see a group of like-minded people with similar goals and ambitions, right? But with different skills and perspectives, all primarily set forth for the good of everyone in that city. And indeed, a city and a tower are gifts from God. It is men subduing the earth. But when the motivation and the end goal of such monumental achievement is for worship, uh, for self-worship and fame, that's where man has taken something meant for good and has turned it into something for evil. Man here isn't building for God. The text says, let us build for ourselves. There's a selfish motivation, a selfish ambition. And so that leads then us to the motivation for these men in building this. And the text reveals the motivation of the heart of the people in Babel. We saw that the men are, what the men are doing. Now let's look at their motivation. Uh, we already looked at the phrase, come let us build ourselves, but now it's stated a bit more explicitly, more clearly here. And I see three sinful motivations in the heart of man. First, they are tempting to be like God. Verse 4 says, with its peak in the heavens. Here the tower is a sort of architectural symbol of, of man's self-projected greatness with its top in the heavens. It's an idiom for status of the deities. It's meant to shout significance and potentially a sign of security and prosperity and invincibility. And so at the heart of it, it's an attempt to be like God, to, to construct a self-projected prosperity and greatness self-declared destiny. And secondly, second motivation, they're motivated to make a name for themselves. They want to project their name over God's. Remember, God has been seeking a people who would honor his name. But here in 11.4, he says, let us build for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. And by constructing a large tower, they are attempting to make one oneself immortal and famous and transcendent. Now think of the largest structures of the world, like I mentioned, the Taj Mahal and the Egyptian pyramids. They symbolize and represent their creator. They buried their creator. And forever now, as long as those structures exist, people will remember their name. Same here for Babel. The third motivation is that they were adamant in their disobedience to God's plan. They were attempting to be like God. They were motivated to make a name for themselves. And third, they were adamant in their disobedience to God's plan. See, in that verse it says, lest we be dispersed. And the people of Babel knew they were supposed, what they were supposed to do and where they were supposed to go. They knew that settling in was in direct defiance of what God had asked them to do. And their heart was for themselves, not for the will and the commandment of God. So I want to take a pause here and ask you today, even though you don't build towers, or maybe some of you do, but even though most of you probably don't build towers in your job, I want to ask you these questions. You know, in what ways are you attempting to be like God in your own life? In what ways are you attempting to make your name great? In what ways are you being disobedient to God's will, to his plan, and to his commandments in your life? Or maybe another way to think about it is this. Are you one who boasts in yourself about your accomplishments, about getting this job or, or that promotion, 
or, or getting this new hobby and working on this thing or that? Or like we see in the book of James, do you project forward and, and boast about what your plans are for tomorrow because of what you've accomplished today to make this amount of money, this type of car, this type of retirement, to go on this type of vacation, that you've made it big in life. James warns that all such boasting is evil. Make plans, absolutely. That's a, uh, be good stewards, yes. But you don't want to go around living your lives in a way that you pretend to be like God. You don't control your life, and you don't know if and when cancer will come knocking on your door. You don't know when or if your children will come to know the Lord. You can't control whether you're going to be hit by a car on your way home today. But what can we do? We can know God's word, and we can be obedient to him in every step of our life. Friends, would you examine your lives today and see if you are attempting to be like God? And if so, put those ambitions to death. Instead, remember that you have been commissioned to be on this earth, to subdue the earth, to spread throughout the earth and bear the image of God to the ends of the earth. You aren't meant to be God. You're meant to bear the image of God and be like his son, Jesus. Instead of trying to make a name for yourself, embrace the name that God has already given to you. Children of God, ambassadors of Christ, citizens of heaven, for this is far greater Christians, we've been saved from our sin. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. For those who love him and who put their faith in him, you have been forgiven. And if you don't know this Christ, you don't know Jesus and what he's done for you, I pray that you would come even this very day in repentance. We don't need to be God. God is God. And for those in Christ, we have all been given heavenly riches in Christ, of God in Christ. And God has given us a name. We are his children. We are his people. God has given us a grand plan that is far greater than any of our own. And so we've seen what man is doing, and here we've seen man's motivations here, and now we want to take the next portion of time and look at what God is doing in this passage, in God's motivation. Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And that's the first action we see from God. He comes down. Apparently the tower wasn't even high enough that God still had to come down to even see it. And here we have the focal point of the story. Up to now, sin is building. You can think of it even uh, metaphorically. We're building a building here and sin is building. And here is where God stops in to stop it. The same with Adam and Eve. When God arrives, he points out the sin and stops it. What's happening? Same with Cain. Same in Genesis 6 and the wickedness of the earth. He steps in and sends the flood. Genesis is full of stories. The Bible is still full of stories with mounting evil. And then God steps onto the scene and stops it. Same here in Genesis 11. Look at verse 6, and the Lord said, Behold, there are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. While in verse 5 shows the irony of the situation, God has to come down, the second part of the story shows that God isn't really laughing about this puny effort at all. He actually takes it quite seriously. 
Look at how it's described. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. One people, one language, a common goal. The sin on display here is only the beginning. Look at the progression of sin in Genesis. Man sins in his relationship to God, Genesis 3. Genesis chapter uh, 4, we have uh, the sin between a brother and then through the parents uh, with Noah and, and their sin there in Genesis chapter 9 with Ham. Then we have the fall of a nation in Genesis chapter 11. God is stating that should man continue on this path, nothing will be impossible in terms of their sinfulness. Romans 1 illustrates this so clearly, the the downward spiral of sin. But thanks be to God for his sovereignty over sin. God is in full control. God comes down and says, enough. He puts on display his grace and his mercy and prevents them from sinning further. Stop and think about it. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? When was the last time you were caught in sin and praised the Lord for being caught? At work? At school? Maybe a simple lie? Maybe it's an addiction of some kind. You just keep going and you go, keep going. And unless someone catches you, you'll go deeper and deeper into that sin. And while it may be emotionally or even physically painful to be caught in that sin, as a believer, you know that being caught is a grace in itself because you'll get the help you need to be able to stop that sin. Left to ourselves, who can imagine how deep we would be in our sins? Hebrews 12 talks about the blessing, right, of the discipline of God for his people. And we as believers ought to be thankful for this kind of discipline from our Father. Here in the loving kindness of God, he comes down and prevents the people of Babel from driving deeper into their sin. In the outcome of the flood, God promises to never wipe out his people again. So we ask then, How is God going to stop the people of Babel? What does God do? And in the second action, then we see God comes down and he confuses their language, continuing in verse 7. He confuses their language. But look again here at verse 7. God says, come, let us. And Moses, as the writer, is recapturing the power and the authority of God, of the Godhead as originally introduced in Genesis. Come, let us go down and we will confuse their language. This is how God deals with the issue. What was once used to unify man's efforts, namely their language, will now cause them to separate. A third action from God here, verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. The Lord causes them to scatter. He disperses them. And just as we see in the early chapters of Genesis, God making judgment for man's sin, we also see here God showing his divine mercy. Therefore, verse 9, its name was called Babel. And so, ironically, the people of Shinar receive a name for themselves after all, but one that is not to be praised. Babel means confusion. 
And we know that Babel is the wicked Babylon throughout the rest of Scripture, which will be destroyed in the last days, as we read in Revelation. Verse 9, therefore its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The Lord comes down, he confuses their languages, and then he disperses them. He disperses them. Why does God do this? Let's look at the motivation for God. Verse 6 again, we'll go back. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This is review. Two motivations I want to point out. God is jealous for his glory. And he will not give his success, the success of others who seek glory over the Lord. God is jealous for his glory, and he will not allow the success of others who seek glory over him. Man proposed to make a great name for themselves, and God says that it could have happened, and I italicize could, because we know that God is in full control, and he's not going to let that happen. But he says it here, it could have happened, nothing would be impossible for them, but God won't allow that to happen, and it won't allow their plan to go forward. Second motivation, by stepping in and confusing their language, Language In God's kindness, he desires to save them from their own sin, to save them from their own destruction, and to save a people who he will choose to one day bring great glory to his name. This is the heart of God we so often see throughout the Bible, God's passion for his glory and God's patience towards his people. I think Isaiah 48 captures this and verse captures this well and in verse 9 through 11 it says for my name's sake I defer my anger for the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that it may not be cut off <clears throat> that I may not cut you off behold I have refined you but not as silver I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake for my own sake I do it for how should my name be profaned I will not give my glory to another and so as we close, I want to give you a couple significant points to why this passage is so important for us today, especially in the scheme of the entire Bible. Number one, it illustrates the sinfulness of man. This story illustrates the sinfulness of man, and we are that man. Number two, it illustrates God's judgment, but also his graciousness. Without God stepping into our lives, we would be eternally damned in our own sin. Number three, God illustrates that God will not give his glory to another. And he'll do whatever it takes. Number four, it shows that God alone is the one to give his people a great name. But it is given in his timing and in his way. If you look at Genesis chapter 12, with Abraham. It says this, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God will determine how significant your name will be. And in Abraham's case, great in, in the church's case, great. 
And I think you can see these four points here in, this, <clears throat> in, in the Scripture, but I'd like to draw your special attention to one more. To one more, a fifth point. God uses the immense diversity of language and culture to bring even more glory to his name. You say, how? Well, see, because of man's evil desire to make a name for himself, God scatters them with different languages, resulting in different cultures in all different parts of the world. God then commissions his chosen people, Israel, and then later the church, to be a beacon of light and to bring the gospel, of nation, of the gospel to all nations of the world. Despite all the languages created at Babel, the word of God is the singular means of salvation. Romans 1.16 says, It is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel of Christ is the message of salvation for people from all languages and tribes and nations. It bears upon the souls of the earth and is authoritative and sufficient for all of life and godliness. It doesn't matter if the, if the person speaks Swahili or Bahasa or lives in Afghanistan or in Australia. See, this is why William Carey and Amy Carmichael took the gospel to India. It's the same gospel that we have here today. And it's the same gospel that Hudson Taylor and Eric Little took to China. John Patton took this same gospel to the New Hebrides. And when you say the name Jim Elliott, you think of Ecuador and David Livingston of Africa, they took the same gospel to those people. It doesn't matter where you are or where you're living, or who you're talking with. It's the same word that we take to them. God's word is sufficient. And if that's not enough, while God dispersed mankind once before at Babel, God will bring all of his followers together again in the end days. Man sought to make a name for themselves, and God graciously changed their languages and dispersed them over the face of the earth. In Zephaniah 3.9, it says this, Yea, at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. We see a foretaste of this at Pentecost, when the apostles are able to speak one language. God, in his graciousness, shows us a glimpse of how language will not prevent the gospel from going forth. See, what God did with language at Babel, God will restore again in the last days. The gospel goes forth. Acts 1.8, from where? From Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And this brings us to where we are today, right, SFBC? You are part of the Great Commission to bring the gospel to the ends of the world, to all languages and to all peoples and to all nations. And while you may not need to sell all of your things and jump on a plane and travel across the world, realize, friends, the nations are here in our backyard. California is arguably the most diverse state in all of the world. See, the nations have come here, and with that, the gospel opportunities to reach the nations are in our backyard. They abound, opportunities to share the gospel, to save, to train them, to equip them, to go back to their home countries, and to be witnesses for Christ. Be a witness to them. Pray for them. Pray for the salvation and for the Lord to work in their lives. Friends, there are so many opportunities right where we are today. I, I love the heartbeat and the missions of this church. I love that you invite your missionaries to share their ministry and then to preach um, so that you can partner with them 
with what they're doing around the world. Amen and amen, and continue to excel still more. But SFBC, don't be distracted with building a name for yourself on this earth. Instead, bring the truth of Jesus to all nations, that they may be part of the only earthly institution that God has promised to build. That is his church. Christian, don't be distracted with building a name for yourself on this earth. Instead, bring the gospel to all people, that they might be with us in that place which God has gone forward to build for us. That is heaven, where we will worship Jesus Christ forever and ever. Philippians 2, 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God our Father. Oh, Lord, we pray to that end. And oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Revelation 5, 9 says, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you may have, uh, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And in John's vision, Revelation 7, where pastor started this morning, it says in verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is where we are headed. This is where the church is headed. This is where God is taking us. San Francisco Bible Church, may each of you be obedient to God's word. And may each of you be found faithful in fulfilling your part of the great commission for all the nations to glorify the name of our Father on that last day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time today to be in your word and the reminder that you will not give your glory to another. And despite our sin against you, thank you for the forgiveness through your son, Jesus Christ, and your kindness and your patience toward us. I pray, Father, that as we leave this place today, we may be found obedient to your word and faithful to live out the great commission to bring the gospel to all nations of the world. Do a work in our hearts today that we would be faithful even where we are, in our seats here today, in our workplace, and in our school, wherever the Lord has us, wherever you take us, Lord. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.